Edge Dwellers Cafe is a regularly irregular, long-form, interview-based podcast featuring conversations about politics, environment, and mental health in a world on edge. I'm your host, Ben Habib, international relations academic, environmental educator, and neurodiversity advocate who likes having a chat over a hot coffee. My caffeinated conversations try to make sense of the different kind of edges that define us, divide us, and shape how we interact with each other in a world that's under stress, and what it means to be a little different. Greetings, Edge Dwellers. After some time away from the mic, the Edge Dwellers Cafe Potty is back. And this episode's a beauty, so let me set the scene. Something I stress regularly with my international relations students is that in the Anthropocene, in the context of climate change and the ecological crisis, all politics is climate change politics. And by extension, all economics is now climate economics. And if we take that further, all jobs in one way or another are climate jobs. That's a hell of a shift in how we interpret our place in the world and how we give meaning to what we do as professionals, as consumers and as citizens. In that spirit, it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Alison Mitchell to the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Ali is an environmental scientist by trade, a sustainability educator by profession and a community activist by passion. She's currently the course coordinator of the Diploma of Sustainability Practice at TAFE New South Wales, based in Albury-Wodonga. In this episode, Ali poses an important question that we all need to sit with in one way or another. What is sustainability asking of us? To flesh this out, we talk about Ali's personal journey from environmental science to education for sustainability. To flesh this out, we talk about Ali's personal journey from environmental science to education for sustainability, and we delve into a wide range of topics, including the role of sustainability professionals as knowledge brokers, the scourge of eco-anxiety, the role of citizen science, environmental reporting and risk management, energy system transitions, climate politics, and much more. A brief call to action, though, before we get into the main conversation with Ali. Don't forget to smash those like and subscribe buttons if you're enjoying what you're hearing on the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Let's get those algorithms humming to get the podcast out to more Edge Dwellers out there. You can also help support the production of the podcast by shouting a coffee for the EDC via the Edge Dwellers Cafe page on Ko-Fi. Your support helps to offset the cost of researching, hosting, editing, and equipment for the podcast. If you want to do this, you can find the link to the Ko-Fi page in the show notes and on the podcast homepage. So, formalities out of the way, let's get to my conversation with Dr. Alison Mitchell. Dwellers Cafe. Ali Mitchell, after a long period of planning and promise to get this thing done, welcome to the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation, Ben. What was that several years ago? But we did make it. We got there. We always get there. So thank you so much for the invitation. I'm um, really looking forward to having a chat with you today. Thank you. 
Yeah, my pleasure. And this is a great chance for me to learn a little bit more about the backstory of your career journey. So we've known each other for over 10 years from back from my time up in Albury, Wodonga. Uh, and at that time, I think, were you at Charles Sturt University then or you were always at the TAFE since I've known you? Yeah, so I think actually I was sort of on that edge around that time. So I had been with CSIRO for a long time and I was sort of moving my career into education, so moving into TAFE. So I worked part-time for um, TAFE New South Wales doing environmental science subjects um, while I was still working full-time for CSIRO. So there was this sort of period where, you know, things were a bit grey, you might say, with respect to to my career, but it was a great transition period too, I must say. And, uh, yeah, probably still don't know what I want to do when I grow up then. Yeah, I can relate. (laughs) But let's rewind. Take us back to when you first started working at the CSIRO. What got you into environmental science and what were you doing in those earlier parts of your career? So I... As a child, I was always interested in environment, but I didn't realise that, you know, that's where I was going to end up, I guess, and, and sustainability as well. Um, but when I um, left Broken Hill, because I was born and raised in Broken Hill, I had been working in a laboratory for about eight years by that time. And I was fortunate to get um, a role with CSIRO at Murray-Darling Freshwater Research Centre as a laboratory technician. And I thought, you know, I want a career in this area. This was um, water science, aquatic science. And I thought, I want a career in this area. I'm going to need to get some qualifications. And so working in the environmental field, I decided to do an environmental science degree, which then went on to honours, which then went on to PhD. And frankly, I've been a student most of my adult life. I'm not one at the moment, which is extraordinary, but I'm still thinking about studying, I must say. So, um, yeah, so and my PhD was, not surprisingly, in aquatic science and I was doing nutrient cycling um, because, you know, for management reasons, basically. So biogeochemistry, nutrient cycling, and that sort of moved into complex system science as well. So, Yes, and teaching part-time at at TAFE New South Wales, teaching um, environmental science subjects in in aquatic science mostly as well, and just general science subjects and laboratory subjects. And, yeah, just and I really did love the teaching, I must say. The science subjects, all the things that scared me in my aborted science degree way back (laughs) when I first went to university. Yes, I'm a university dropout. (laughs) found what I was meant to be doing. Yeah, and it takes time and I think, you know, for all of us, you know, the the thing is just, you know, go through those doors that open, you know, unless you're absolutely convinced they're not right for you because you always learn something and there has been... Nothing I've done, even things where I felt like, oh, well, I'm just filling in time until I get a real job, everything I do contributes. To, to my career I can't think of anything that hasn't contributed to my career and and where I am now and of course now in my 60 second revolution around the sun I've got a whole lot of stuff <laughs> and somebody yeah I was, I was looking through my CV the other day and I was like oh my goodness yes I have done a bit <laughs> but I've always been curious as well and I think that makes a, a huge difference and um, you're pretty curious as well Ben so yeah, yeah, curiosity is the key. And there's nothing wrong with being an eternal student. No. It's more it's more so a curiosity about the world. Absolutely. And that 
that has always fascinated me and I can see even my evolution in thinking around um, that area. So um, one of the things I did when I was working with CSIRO was I was a knowledge broker. So I was um, translating the, the science into plain English, taking it to natural resource managers and then bringing back to the scientists what it was the natural resource managers needed to know to sort of prioritise research projects. And as part of that, I started to get really interested in sort of the social stuff. So I was pretty... Yeah, I had a fair bit of that environmental knowledge by this stage. But, yeah, I started getting really interested in the social stuff because, you know, engaging with stakeholders is such an important thing for natural resource managers. And so I also did a, a graduate certificate at the University of Western Australia in natural resource management policy and planning. And then, oddly, that introduced me to the economic stuff. And what I learned in that course, and I knew I learned stuff in that course, because at that time there used to be a show on ABC TV, which was it's now the business. And there was this this sort of epiphany where suddenly I understood what they were saying because it's a whole different language, you know. And so, and here I was without really intending to, you know, in this sustainability area and also very much moving into this education area. And so um, I've done a number of things with Charles Sturt Uni, which was absolutely wonderful. But um, the last thing I did with them was to teach a sustainability subject in one of their master's degrees. And during that time was also convincing TAFE New South Wales to support uh, and, and get TEXA accredited a higher education diploma in sustainable practice, which is really just teaching people how to be change agents, change managers. So those sustainability professionals in organisations that are driving more sustainability and more sustainable practice in the organisation. And that's where I currently am. Yeah, that knowledge broker role is so important, is it? Because sustainability, you've got economics that has its own language, yep. science, which has its own language. Yep. And then social science or the social realm, which has its own language. It's not just its own language, it's an entire interpretation of how the world works. Yeah. And functions, and they're all so different. And oh, bringing that are. together, it's really specialist skills, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, you know, just learning, yeah, those, those different languages. And then, of course, sustainability also, it, it's an umbrella industry. It applies to every role in every organisation. And so then you also need to have, you know, some kind of uh, language from a whole range of different industries, which is, yeah, so, yeah, it's um, it can get a bit crazy sometimes and I do forget things sometimes that um, I'll forgive myself for that. But, yeah, it, it's, it is. It's, um, it's an incredibly specialist area. Mm. And I, I guess what we're teaching um, students in, in this course that I'm delivering at the moment is to be what you might call generalist sustainability professionals, which is essentially jack of all trades, master of none, and you be an expert in what you need to be when you need to be an expert in it. And over the years of, you know, of all this reading and, you know, engaging with stakeholders and knowledge broker roles and teaching roles and educational development roles and, you know, you kind of you have just built up um yeah a pretty well a, a, like I can talk pretty well a little bit about almost everything um to do with sustainability which is almost everything um but I wouldn't call myself an absolute expert in anything at all now 
Was there any point in your journey where you had a, an ah shit moment when it came to the environmental crisis? Uh, all the time. A um, couple of days ago, <laughs> even. What about the first one? Everyone has a first one. Yeah, I think the first one was just I, I walk a lot and I'm here in Wodonga, which is a very rapidly developing space. And I think one of my early oh shit moments was, oh, my goodness, there were cows grazing there last week. Uh, <laughs> and and this idea of where where is this going to end? You know, are we going to continue to do? I mean, I know we need to house people. I know all of this stuff. Um, and pragmatism is incredibly important, I think, uh, in the world just to survive it. I think you need pragmatism. But yeah, just that, I think that was probably one of my early holy shit moments, apart from, you know, the things that I was reading at the time. But yeah, there are so many of them. But yeah, this continuing development that just, doesn't seem to end and and you're tempted to think you know where do people think this is going to end you know where are they going to grow food where are they going to go to connect with nature which we know is so important for our mental health and I don't think they do think <laughs> and I think if they do think they think it's not going to end and haven't got that concept of you know that bigger picture concept of you know we can't just continue to do this you know, business as usual is rapidly coming to an end. How do you navigate that need to straddle two different worlds or exist in two different worlds where you can clearly see the end of the line of unsustainable practices and yet, you know, we still have to exist uh, in society and economy that's, you know, in that runaway train? Yeah, that's right. And, look, you know, honestly, it worries me that we seem to think that the economy is some living, breathing beast that has control of us. Um, and I know it feels that way. I felt I felt that way myself. But it is a social construct and we can change it. And there is a lot of pushes to change it, which we might even get to talk about a little bit later. But I'm thinking steady state economics, circular economy, um, degrowth, um, you know, even economics of happiness <laughs> yeah, and and there's lots and lots of, of moves happening and and it will happen um I'm certain of it but I think it's that um optimism that is so important and with that optimism comes hope and with that hope hope is also supported by the fact that we have all the answers there's nothing we need right now, even as new technologies and new knowledge keeps coming online all the time. We have everything we need right now. But, yes, yeah, straddling that, um, you know, we're going to hell in a handbasket with, um, you know, trying to, to keep pushing this, you know, but, you know, but is really challenging and I think you know the concepts of sol nostalgia and eco-anxiety are things that I feel quite deeply from time to time um definitely things that others feel we know because there's a there's enough evidence out there definitely things that my students feel um and so I, I think I'm getting better at recognising when I'm going down that hole and being able to go, right, where's my go-to uplifts um, because I need those. And um, so, you know, 
we um, as a, a student learning facilitator group we have a, a forum which is you know post your uplifting bits here and and you know go to them and um yeah most people have heard from me there's no sustainability without a sustainable youth so and we really need to take care of ourselves and taking care of ourselves is those uplifting bits um but it's also you know the evidence is overwhelming for how important connecting with our loved ones that social connection and connecting with nature is just so important for our mental health. And can I just have a quick word about citizen science here? Because um, one of the things that I discovered, I am a walker. I walk a lot. And I used to go, well, I'm really lucky here. We have really lovely environment to, to walk in. And you're never far from a creek or a, a, a nice wooded hill. or um, and, and there's even an area just probably about a kilometre for me where I can go and I can't see or hear the urban area. And, and it's only about a one kilometre walk. So really, really lucky. And, you know, walk every day, think I'm connecting with nature. And then a friend got me involved in citizen science and looking at looking at pollinators. And it, I realised when I did that, that I wasn't actually connecting with nature on my walk. So I just moved the rubbish in my head from my desk to a different location. And so citizen science is, um, I think, a fantastic way to get that mindfulness and to get that focus and to get that connection with nature. Just because you're out there doesn't mean you're connecting with it, so make sure you're connecting with it. And, of course, as a scientist, citizen science can be absolutely fantastic. And I recall the days when Waterwatch was trying to standardise the data that they were getting from their community water watches, such that it was really useful for scientists as well. And that's inc- we see that increasingly happen as well. But yeah, get into citizen science if you haven't. It's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, you're totally right about the just walking through nature is not really being in nature. Nope. And I was, I reckon, I was nearly 50 when I worked that out <laughs> so all those lost years because <laughs> I used to I mean I've been a walker all, all my life I remember missing the school bus so I could work walk the four kilometers to school just because it, it always did sort of feel like meditation in motion um, and I think that's why I valued it and I didn't notice there was some Somewhere along that line, over time, my walking turned into thinking time rather than meditation time. But I guess, yeah, if you can, you know, do do your walking and, you know, it's like meditation in motion for you, then great. But if you've just taken the stuff from your head, from your in your head, from your desk to out outdoors. Maybe just stop and check: Are you actually connecting with nature, or, <laughs> or just mulling over the same rubbish because it is all rubbish ultimately all right let's drill down on what it means to work as a sustainability professional what is sustainability asking of us yeah look I think that's something that um yeah I've I've sort of developed my own ideas around sustainability and what it what it's asking of us for example over the many years that I've been involved in reading and just putting too much probably in my head sometimes um, but yeah, look, there, there is a Venn diagram um, that describes sustainability. And so it's got an economic pillar, 
social pillar, which researchers will argue needs to be cultural and maybe we need a fourth pillar. Yeah, okay, I get all that. But, you know, for simplicity, just let's put the political in with the with the social and the cultural um, and the environment pillar. And where they overlap, that's sustainability. And that gives us a really important hint, I think, of what sustainability is actually asking of us. So I'll just use an example of tea. You need to go to the shop to get tea to take home to make your cup of tea in the morning. So when you're at the shop and you're looking at that tea or the variety of teas that you have to choose from, do you just look at that economic pillar and choose the cheapest? Or can you manage to think about, you know, were any people harmed in the production of that tea? So can you maybe think about mm, probably paying a little bit more and getting the fair trade and thinking about that social pillar and people in the making of that tea? Can you go a little bit further, probably pay a little bit more and think about that environment pillar and was, was the environment harmed in that? So is that tea organic such that chemicals weren't used in its production? And that really is what sustainability is asking of us, to balance those three systems in our decision-making. And, of course, that isn't always possible and it certainly isn't always easy. But, you know, sometimes it, it's just you're broke and, and you can't afford the fair trade or the economic. And I think the other thing that sustainability challenges us with is not to feel guilty. Yeah, any little thing that you can do is is fantastic. And look, I've felt the guilt. I certainly have. Um, you know, but you know, I'm doing something. You know, I'm doing what I can. And time, to be honest, is my biggest barrier. We all have barriers. It could be money, it could be time, but fortunately for me, time is my biggest barrier. But yeah, that's what it's asking of us. Try and balance those three systems, the social, economic, and environmental in our decision making. And if you can't don't kick yourself. Just move on and do the best you can the next time. You've asked that question in terms of the consumption side of the coin. Mm-hmm. How do you, as a sustainability professional, have those conversations when you're talking about production chains yeah, and on that side of the, the fence? Yeah, look, it's exactly the same, really. So in, in your supply chain, Can you consider, you know, have I got a a certified fair trade product? Have I got a certified organic product or other, you know, other things that you can think about? But really the question is the same for the supply chain. It's no no different at all the way I see it anyway. And and that's what we're seeing organisations move to. With the global pandemic, there was, I did wonder at the time whether or not, you know, organisations would think a bit more about um, strategic stuff. So, and I'll I'll just backtrack a little bit there because we can think about, well, who is doing sustainability? And so I I can't quite recall. I feel like I live in a time warp these days. But five or ten years ago, really large companies, multinational, multi-billion dollar companies like Nike, Unilever came out and started saying, you know, that sustainability, that's not that too hard, too expensive stuff we thought it was. It's actually saving us a shed load of money. And so large organisations started getting on board. 
family organisations, they they do tend to be quite good. We um, we can't generalise, but, you know, they do tend to be quite good. Now, my sense is that that's because they're more connected to their community. When we look at the SMEs, the small, medium enterprises, the high street shops, they're trying to survive, basically. So they're working in their business and not on their business. And I did wonder when um, when we had the global pandemic and lockdowns and um, whether organisations might just take that time to, particularly the SME organisations, might just take that time to think about their business strategically. And, and they did have quite a bit of, I don't have hard evidence, but quite a bit of evidence that they have done that just from, you know, talking to people in my sustainability professional network. It also happened with um, consumers as well, is that they maybe started, you know, reading or connecting in social media in places where there is a big demand for um, more sustainable products and services. And, of course, the the younger generations are just going to demand it anyway. And that all leads sort of to the business case basically the business case for sustainability and sustainable practice is overwhelming absolutely overwhelming and that's when you kind of when you know the business case you think why isn't everyone doing it well they're not doing it largely because they're not working you know on their business strategically they're working in it having said that you know that that's not a <laughs> you know a brush that we can paint all organizations with and some some are still very focused on their their shareholders, but increasingly organisations are focusing on their stakeholders and, of course, the environment is a stakeholder. Have you seen a focus on risk management in business clientele increase as you know, climate change impacts have become more immediate? Yeah, absolutely, and, and within that conversation um, we can talk about words, I think, because, you know, words do matter. And so some some people might remember, you know, there were there was all this talk about green and eco. And of course, if you use that now, someone's gonna almost throw up. Um probably us, <laughs> sustainability professionals. And then we've moved into sustainability. But what I'm what I'm finding is that even that's starting to make people's eyes glaze over. And so risk is a huge area um, and, and a great word to talk about. And I know um, because I'm also um, an activist, and um, but most of my active, activism now is probably political lobbying, political advocacy. And, um, yeah, pretty well every time I write, <laughs> it, risk is always a term that I include there. And business, you know, is understand, or all organisations, not just business, are really understanding that concept of risk um, as something that needs addressing. So it's a word that kind of, oh, yeah, gets them up and thinking about this is something I've got to address. Um, because even if you're only focused on shareholders, you've got to address it. It's a risk. So, um, yeah, it, it's a really important word to use, I think, and, and um, there is an international standard, 36,000 or 31,000, I can't, I can never quite recall, I always get those mixed up, but there is a an international standard guide, so it can't be certified, and it can help 
help a sustainability professional to to work through getting sustainability and sustainable practice into an organisation with that risk in mind. And of course, you know, you'd have to be living under a rock at the moment, wouldn't you, to not understand that not only is climate change a risk, but loss of biodiversity and nature is also a huge risk and, of course, intertwined those. So when we're talking about risks, like what specific risks do businesses face from climate change impacts or from biodiversity loss? So organisations have risks from a multitude of places, but it's going to be very specific to the organisation. So climate change could be, for example, uh, could be impacting their supply chain. Um, It could, and that could be because of nature impacts as well, um, could be impacting their supply chain. So not just necessarily climate change, but it's quite possibly a combination of both. But I think what's really driving this stuff now is one business itself. So in the recent COP15 in Montreal, the Biodiversity Conference of the Parties, business, there was, I think, 500 odd businesses from 33 countries went to that Conference of the Parties demanding that government make mandatory reporting or disclosure on the risks to the to an organization around nature and biodiversity so what were their supply chain risks what were their impacts on biodiversity and nature as, as a result of their business and they're going to have to measure that and disclose that The businesses that went to that COP didn't quite get it mandatory, but there is a target, 15, I think it is, which says that government should be encouraging um, large businesses to disclose um, nature impacts and, um, and their effects on nature and what they're doing to reduce their impacts on nature. That's huge. That is absolutely huge because everything starts there. You know, I like start somewhere, I should say. So, you know, I recall back in the 70s (laughs) working on a mine and occupational health and safety was that, you know, wishy-washy rubbish stuff. You don't see anyone anywhere now without PPE for example. So, you know, things start somewhere and in my mind that is the start of something really big. Um, You know, it's going to become mandatory um, throughout basically all organisations, I would say. And there's also the mandatory disclosure around climate change. So um, the Task Force on Climate-Related Risk it's, uh, financial risk is is a really big trend um, and the task force on nature related risk is going to be I think the real really important thing for measuring um, nature risks and nature impacts in that that's going to come out of that the COP15 in Montreal but TCFD so New Zealand was the first to make that mandatory and so just on with financial institutions initially and that was uh, towards the end of 2020, if I recall, so not terribly long ago. But New Zealand has all, already introduced legislation to expand that to more businesses than just the financial industry. Um, the G7 uh, made it mandatory not long after. We then, 
when I say we, sustainability professionals probably, then believe that, well, if the G7's done it, New Zealand's done it, then the G20's going to do it. And Australia, of course, is part of the G20. Um, but then we had a global pandemic, so that didn't quite get there. But it's coming. It will come. And, of course, there's a whole heap of stuff happening in Europe as well. And what's really interesting and I think at the moment is the multinational companies, So, um, and I, I won't name any, but if they're sort of based in Europe, they have more compliance than we have in Australia. And so their organisations or their branches in Australia are going way beyond compliance for what is compliance in Australia. And so all of these things are just going to move through. Is it one year? Is it two years? Is it five years? Is it 10 years? No crystal ball and and I wouldn't guess. But what I will say is that, you know, my 30 years watching this industry um, and being part of it, things are moving incredibly rapidly right now, incredibly rapidly. And going back to that question about, you know, how do I, you know, bridge that gap between we're going to hell in a handbasket and <laughs> is that, you know, not only do I have a role where I need to know that we're going to hell in a handbasket, I also am so fortunate to be in a role where I get to see all the solutions and all these exciting things happening. You know, this, this, this is just so exciting and a green new deal in Europe. And, you know, it, it seems to me every day there's something coming into my inbox, which is like, holy moly, this is a huge thing. Um, whereas, you know, five years ago, oh, maybe a few times a year, but it's just, it's just relentless now. And that gives me hope. And optimism as well. Yeah, I guess the significance of the mandatory reporting on climate and nature-related risks is because it influences how businesses can get finance and insurance, doesn't it? Absolutely. And um, that's another huge thing that's coming outside of government is the impact investment. So there's a lot of organisations and indeed individuals who want to engage in impact investment. So that's investing in things that are doing good, not just economically, but also socially and environmentally. So the shared value stuff. Um, and of course, there's no, there's no real standard way of reporting these things. I mean, you know, we've been reporting economic stuff seemingly forever, um, but how do you measure and report on environment and social? And that's, we with the social, we are, you know, we will provide like assign, say, a dollar value to health costs, things like that. So, so that's a little bit easier, but environment is just this other <laughs> otherworldly thing. And so, and look, we've known, we've, again, it seems like we've known forever. Like most of my career, I've been hearing about how difficult it is to measure. And of course, you've got to measure to report, but to measure on environment stuff. And everybody's got their own indicators and metrics. And, you know, everybody's doing their own thing and mine's better than yours. And, yeah. So there's within this sort of push around disclosure, mandatory disclosure, TCFD, TNFD, um, but also these impact investors saying, well, how am I going to compare Bob to Sally if they're not measuring and reporting in the same way? So a huge push from investors as well to get to standardise this sort of measurement and reporting. 
Um, again, I'm kind of optimistic on that, but having seen the struggles for so long around standardising indicators and metrics for environmental measurement and monitoring and, and disclosure, um, yeah, good luck. <laughs> but we've got to get there. There's no choice. And, and there does seem to be a global urgency to get there at the moment, driven by investors and business and not so much government, sadly. Dwellers Cafe. Part of this process is energy system transitions. How does that factor into uh, what sustainability professionals are doing? Yeah, so look, um, energy transition is such an exciting area right now. And I have to say, every time I delve into it, I come out with a bit of a headache. It is complex and complicated, you know, your quintessential wicked problem, isn't it really? Like pretty well everything in sustainability is is a, is a wicked problem. So, you know, no silver bullet solution and you need as many people at the table as you can. It's probably the best way to describe briefly wicked problems, I guess. But, yeah, this one is huge wicked problem. Like it, it's I don't know why, but I can't entirely get my head into it. And every time I do, there's, oh, no, we need hydrogen now. And, oh, no, it's not EVs, it's ZEVs because we've got zero because we might have hydrogen because, um, you know, and then and the new technologies are just really challenging to keep up with when you're, you know, trying to keep up with so many other things. That is an area I think is, you know, for a generalist sustainability professional who knows a bit about as many different things um, or many different issues from as many different perspectives as possible. This one is one of those areas where you're probably going to have to bury your head in this for a, a little while and um, and be an expert in for a little while if that's what you need to do in your organisation or you go to your sustainability professional network um, and go, yep, I've read a bit about this and read a bit about that. What am I missing? And because somebody's done it, somebody's you know, gotten their head into that space. But I, I think what I'm finding is that, you know, some not everyone wants to be a general sustainability professional. That's not surprising. I love it. Um, it's such a dynamic industry, plus you're dealing with people um, who will tend to drive you nuts, but they also will tend to give you the most rewarding days as well. So I love the behaviour change stuff and the stakeholder engagement stuff in being a sustainability professional. But not everyone wants to do that. And so energy is one of those areas where I'm finding they're drawn to and to sort of, you know, be building expertise in, in that area as well as the economics. And, but, yeah, it, it's a whole new ball game and it changes almost every day is how it seems to, to me. But it's, it's exciting and we're going there regardless of what anyone thinks or says. Um, but it, it, it is amazing how I still hear people with a, you know, a climate denialist sort of viewpoint or that we need more gas or it, it's just, okay, people, right? <laughs> yeah. Mm, yeah, willful stupidity. Outright corruption. There's not really any other way to describe well, it. Yeah, look at there that that's exactly right. And look, um, you know, for quite some time over 
um, you know, probably around a decade or so ago, I, I really started to struggle with, you know, are they just stupid or are they corrupt? <laughs> and it, it took me some time to to actually get to the point. And I think because I, I was in a little bit of denial, I didn't want to believe that they were corrupt. I don't know why that is because that's stupid. Um, but yes, a lot of corruption and it still exists and it's still very evident. But we fortunately have communities and businesses leading the way. And I think that's also one of the, the, the key things around sustainability, not just what is it asking of us, but it's also sustainability is never either or. It is always and both, you know, and and, and what I do see is that, you know, where governments start to not pull their weight, so to speak, communities really you know, lift their game and pull their pull their weight much, much more. And there's there's always this variation in, you know, who's doing what and who's doing most of the heavy lifting, I guess. But at the moment we very much have um community and business doing heavy lifting. That's my view. Yeah, it's an interesting time. There's like a social transition that's going on with this technological and economic and you know, business transition. Indeed, yes. yeah, and, and all of the all of the political and social relationships that stem from the structure of the economy, and uh, they're all changing. It's a very fascinating time to see it the is. resistance to that change. Who's embracing the change? Who's caught up in the churn? That's why the politics are so wild right now. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, like I've um, I've been terribly busy the last couple of weeks and I'm usually hooked in quite well to, you know, news. But the last couple of weeks I, I haven't been terribly well hooked in or not nearly as well as usual. And um, I got to, to catch some uh, late news on television the other night, yes, because I'm old and I still watch radio TV. Um, but, yeah, I caught caught some, the SBS news the other night and, and, and started feeling like I wish I hadn't. It's like the whole, you know, in the space of days, it seems, the whole world's gone crazy <laughs> and there's just, you know, violence and demonstrations and, seemingly everywhere at the moment and you know and wars that we're not even hearing about like why are we never talking about Jordan yeah it's just that yeah world's gone nuts is is that sense I have which Mm. always brings me back to limits to growth yeah well they did predict that yeah, the 1972 book. Well, more importantly, the the reviews since have, have all sort of said, mm, yeah, we're doing a bit better than that. We reckon about 2030. Um, and 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 you know, it it does seem to be tracking tracking that way. But um, yeah, what that looks like. Well, I think we're seeing it. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think back. If you look back in history, when was the last time there was a big energy system transition? It's the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. In Europe, and then you look at all of the associated social and political upheaval that accompanied that change, and all of the major isms that our societies run on now, yeah, had origins in that period. So there will be new isms that develop now because of the current tumult that we're in that will govern the next couple of hundred years. Yeah, uh, yeah. This will be a period you look back on. It's like, oh wow, this is like eighteen forty-eight or. 1789 is that is that kind of vibe about you know this current period of time yeah that and that's really interesting and I hadn't really thought about that but yeah it'd be great to sort of 
and I'm probably going to do that now, um, go back and have a look at, you know, what, what uh, you know, some evidence from around that period and, and what actually happened and, you know, where where was the peak of craziness and where did things start to sort of settle down and, you know, how long was that period? I mean, we can't, um, you know, they won't be the same, but I'll bet, oh, yeah, I totally agree. They will be very, very similar. Is it Jeremy Rifkin who did a talk? I remember seeing a talk. <laughs> Oh, one of the universities, uh, Australian universities, I think it's Jeremy Rifkin talks about the fourth industrial revolution. Mm, yeah, he's written about that. Well, it's an antidote to doomerism too. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of environmentalists, and I was like this about 10 years ago and thought, oh, you know, this current model of society is hitting the wall and we're going back to the Stone Age. <laughs> and it's going to burn. It's like, no, that's not how it happens. It, yeah, the old system's dying. But yeah. something new is being born at the same time, and it's yeah, it's a re, it's a death and rebirth process that's going it on. It is very, and much. it's not the apocalypse. No, it's going to be difficult. But uh, yeah, yep. it's yeah, we're not going to end up being in some sci-fi dystopia. Hopefully, <laughs> no, I I totally agree with you. Totally agree with you. I think yeah, and I think it wasn't that Buckminster Fuller who said. You know, you don't try and change the old system. You just build a new one that's better um, or something like that. My, my quote's <laughs> rubbish. So sorry to anyone that I attempt to, to quote. But, yeah, and that's what communities are doing. That's exactly what communities are doing right now. They're just building a better system. And, I, you know, I'm so fortunate to, to be in this community and I know it's not the only community like it anywhere, but I just feel so fortunate to be here. You know, we've got totally renewable yak and dander just down the road who are, you know, almost there basically. Um, we've got things like Repair Cafe, um, you know, which is is just going great guns we've got amazing community groups just working in advocacy and and lobbying but you know also nature and the land care groups and you know and and I guess when when I was talking about uplifts earlier probably my most important uplift is my community and and just connecting with them and seeing what they're doing and delighting in what they're doing and and participating in what they're doing as well, which is mentioned earlier. I'm an activist, and so yeah, I participate in all of these things and would love to do more. So yeah, probably heading for retirement. <laughs> well, I want to ask you about this because I remember when I was in Albury Wodonga. So this is 2010 to 2012 that I was there, and I was really struck that there was this extensive ecosystem of an environment and sustainability related groups yeah. in the region that were pretty well networked and then we had the the eco portal website i i know you were deeply involved in setting that up and i had a very small role at the time helping out with that and and all of a sudden all of these groups are networked through this website in a way uh, that i hadn't seen elsewhere you had this this socioeconomic compost of community that was fertile was there i actually think it had a it played a role in the rise of independent politics in indi and it was part of the the kathy mcgowan and helen haynes effect right and there yeah i wouldn't quantify that but just having been there as that you know that phenomenon was starting to take off at the time so 
I can understand this. There's there's something happening here in the old Brudonga region and surrounds that's different from, say, Mount Gambia, where I grew up. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, look, Eco Portal came out of an idea from reading um, Paul Hawkins' Blessed Unrest. So in that book, he talks about how all of these grassroots organisations are doing all sorts of things in sustainability and, and it, it just blew my mind. And, yeah, I kind of thought, ah, we need our own little blessed unrest in Albury-Wodonga. So that's sort of what, what uh, got that going. Of course, um, it, it, wouldn't have, it wouldn't have happened um, unless people such as yourself and Karen Retra had gotten involved and Karen Retra is still um, managing that that website and um, yeah we're just about to to take it through a rebuild actually which is is really quite exciting but yeah look I think the other thing I think it helps with is keeping you engaged so you know sometimes with community groups um, and when you're a volunteer you can start to feel like it's a bit of a chore I think sometimes and that's um, that's a killer an absolute killer but when you can see you know there's all these community groups and there's all this stuff happening and actually I'm usually volunteer for this group on Saturday but actually I want to go to this you know sustainable house viewing or the seed savers seed swap or something and and so yeah it just helps to keep you engaged and to keep you knowing that you're very much not alone, that you're very much part of a huge group. And so in that way, it could well have contributed to, um, you know, and, and look, I know a lot of the people who are in Eco Portal are also involved with Voices for Indi. Um, and I would have been involved as well if I could have, but yeah, no, no time, sadly, at the time when that was happening. And what a magnificent group that was. So we had, yeah, and look, I am so proud to be part of Indi, I think we have amazing representation, absolutely amazing. I admire them, both Cathy McGowan, um, who was the, the first independent candidate in, in what was an incredibly safe Liberal seat, incredibly safe. And then, um, and then, of course, now we have Dr Helen Haynes, who is incredibly connected to a well both Helen and um Kathy were just so so community driven incredibly well connected to their community um emotional intelligence um just you know oozes out of them and so they have empathy and they uh, listen actively and you know they they do their best to get consensus around things and look I have even um said to Kathy look I don't always agree with what your decisions are but you always tell me you always explain to me in your newsletter or if I call you you'll explain to me you know why you've made that decision and that's important to me I still don't have to agree with it but if I understand why that decision's made that sits quite comfortably with me but yeah absolutely both incredible people and just so lucky to have them so Helen's sort of um, been heavily involved in the federal ICAC um, the corruption commission and also the local power plan so and and look everything that both Kathy and Helen developed like there would never be you know, a plan or a piece of legislation or anything that either of those representatives would have ever taken to Parliament without an, an incredibly comprehensive community engagement 
process and and that yeah it's just so so important yeah I feel incredibly fortunate to be in this electorate of Indi. Now I feel incredibly fortunate to have been there at its genesis and yeah. the birth of this it was, you could tell something was bubbling up oh wow yeah and then to, yeah when I moved away but I'm still watching from afar and it was like it was really exciting to see there's something yeah. special about the region Yes, and it's made history now. So, you know, the two independents and, you know, unseating a, you know, a safe liberal at the time, just incredible. Mm. But, yeah, incredibly exciting. And, you know, one of the things, um, so I'm involved with the Australian Conservation Foundation Group locally here in Albury-Wodonga, so ACF, Albury-Wodonga region, ACFAWR, and we do quite a lot of things, but one of the things we do do um, with support and encouragement from ACF um, is political lobbying and advocacy and they support us and train us and encourage us to to meet our local MPs, um, federal MPs um, primarily. So what we have here in Albury-Wodonga, in the Albury-Wodonga region, so we have Farrah over on the New South Wales side of the Murray River and, um, and that's, sorry, Susan Lee. Um, who was the Environment Minister until recently. And on this side of the river, we have Helen Haynes. And I don't think you could get any further at either end of a continuum <laughs> for what it is to meet with with um, both of those MPs. And it, it's just extraordinary. And because um, we have met with Susan and we have met with Helen and the difference was just amazing. And all I could think is, you know, what a difference a river makes. <laughs> and it always intrigues me how people vote because, you know, for example, I grew up in a, a mining town which which always votes uh, what we might think of as, as progressively or left. Um, yet if you speak with them, their views are very socially conservative in fact so um and and you know i often think about like we know there's enough data out there to say you know how many people like most of the australian community for example are concerned with climate change it's a little bit troubling at the moment that very few of the australian community of roughly a third are concerned about biodiversity and nature loss but that that will change over time i'm sure but yet people don't vote as if they're concerned with climate change. And again, it comes back to these wicked problems. You know, there's always, always so many issues that we can, you know, that we can be concerned about. So just because I'm concerned about climate change doesn't mean I'm more, I'm concerned, you know, less about something else and not more about something else. And so, um, that's, uh, where, where we vote, I guess. Or do we just go along and, and just oh I know that name or oh I'm going to go number <laughs> people are fascinating eternally fascinating people are so yeah it's probably if I was going to do another degree probably psychology probably where I'm going to go <laughs> you figure out the political psychology puzzle you become a very very rich consultant <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's just so interesting and so 
you know, being a sustainability professional, you, you touch on that all the time, you know, around behaviour change. So because behaviour change is such an important part of being a sustainability professional, that's the future-proof stuff because, you know, pretty well anyone can get a grant and go and put on timer taps, timer switches, solar panels, batteries, whatever. But, you know, you run out of low-hanging fruit projects and anyway, they would do better with behaviour change. So behaviour change is a, is a really big part of, of what a general sustainability professional would do and so you can't do that without touching a little bit on you know that psychology of, of um, yeah, behavior change and marketing as well which is why you know there's a great show on ABC TV Creed Air <laughs> called Gruen um, with, you know which is really fascinating to to you know look at how these things happen but yeah I mean yeah eternally fascinating I find and it is something that that I probably would want to delve into a little bit as I move into my next career (laughs) or delve into further I guess Mm. and yeah I did at one point I had a do, do you recall when Gina Reinhart was um, doing her best to make sure that most of her children got nothing until long after they were dead or she was dead. And I thought, what, what on earth is been like this? Is really? And so I did some research. I, I looked at peer-reviewed research um, publications on that psychology of greed. That is fascinating. I don't know if you've ever ever looked into that but they would do really interesting experiments like um just just give one example so they'd you know set up a a monopoly board and on one side of the board they would have twice the money and two die and on the other side of the board there would be one dice half the money and then um about in the middle of the table off to the side there would be say a bowl of chips And apparently it would not take long. So once the people came into the room and started playing Monopoly, apparently it would not take long before the person with twice the money would drag the bowl of chips to them. So there was this whole sense of entitlement that came with this. But anyway, it it probably shouldn't go into that further, but it's really fascinating if anyone has time to go and have a look at. But look, I, I will do the spoiler alert greed money it's just like any other drug you know the more you get the more you want so and there's the there's the answer to the question that I keep hearing people say well haven't they got enough money yet how much do they need you know or you can't take it with you it doesn't matter to them it's just a drug and it's poisonous of relationships absolutely yeah like the Reinhardt family or the Murdoch family you look at how that poisons the relationships between founder and sibling and grandchildren and all that. You look at relationships between people of elite socioeconomic class status and it's so not trusting. It's no wonder they're all sociopaths. It's just to generalise a sec there. But, yeah. No, absolutely. And I am. Yeah, it's an incapacity for horizontal relationship and that feeds into political process. My most recent read, and it's a book by Douglas Rushkoff, mm. he called, called Survival of the Richest, with the subtitle Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. 
it's really fascinating. But there's also a Radio National podcast, which is what led me to to get the book, actually, and that's probably worthwhile listening to as well. But yeah, he um he he was draw he was basically asked to to come to a meeting, which he thought was because he um, he's considered a futurist. He doesn't believe he is, but. And when he got there, there were these five billionaires who basically wanted him to tell them how they were going to survive in their bunkers. Really quite a fascinating story. But, um, yeah, I yeah, won't spoil it too much. No, well, that's right, you know, and uh, <laughs> and it's like, but, yeah, where did we where did we get to that thinking? You know, that's mm-hmm. that's incredibly fascinating to me, mm-hmm. incredibly fascinating. One of the things that makes it difficult for people to conceptualise the, the great change that we're going through is we, as individuals, we tend to interpret our reality in a really linear way. Yeah. Whereas what we need is complex systems thinking. Now, it's sustainability professionals, it's integral to use complex systems thinking, particularly when you're thinking about change at scale, like at societal or economy or ecosystem-wide scale. You, you have to think this way. And complex systems have different behaviours to individual people. How do you use complex systems thinking in your work? Yeah, so complex systems thinking was one of those things that I was really fortunate to delve into with my PhD. So because we were, I was looking at, um, you know, biogeochemistry and nutrient cycling, that is a complex system, <laughs> very complex. And, yeah, isn't it, um, isn't it interesting how... I think humans seem to think that, you know, linear cause and effect relationships, for example, are the most common, whereas in fact they're almost rare, <laughs> you know, with, with respect to the real world. But yeah, look, systems thinking is, is vital for sustainability professionals. And to be honest, I believe it's a life skill, really. And so, yeah, you know, knowing, I think, I don't think that it needs to be, you know, incredibly challenging. Like people who are, are wanting to delve into complex systems and com- complex systems thinking, I would fully encourage it because it, it, it is endlessly fascinating, just like people, <laughs> I find. But, you know, when we think about, you know, what is it do we as individuals or us as, for, for, you know, as a life skill or us as sustainability professionals, what is it that we really need to know about? systems and systems thinking we just need to know that everything is inherently interrelated and interdependent and if you do something over there something is going to happen over there or over there and it might be instant or it might be next week or it might be you know and and when we think of because what I'm talking about here in in um, systems thinking is is hysteresis effects and so yeah, and the best example of hysteresis effects that we have, um, you know, in front of us right now, I guess, is climate change. You know, we need to <laughs> we need to understand that you know everything is inherently and interrelated and interdependent. Whatever we do, it's going to have an effect somewhere and somewhere else. And so, one of the things that um, that we look at and that I actually love to do and I would carry, encourage anyone listening to do this, do a systems map. It is like, yes, I'm a nerd, but they're a lot of fun. Now do one on your own first just so that you know where this is going to go and then get a heap of people, um, whoever's willing, get children 
um, introduce children to systems thinking um, by doing this. And if you just do a systems map, and so and you can do it with anything. You know, you can you can walk into any room and somebody's got a a, a cup of coffee. You just grab that. Somebody a shoe. Just do it on a shoe. You know what what has you know what has gone into that shoe and what are and what are the effects of that shoe and and you can just do this systems map and it, it really is a lot of fun now systems maps are are becoming increasingly used in business to either complement SWOT so um, you know strengths weaknesses opportunities threat analyses or indeed instead of them because one of the things that um, a systems map can do particularly when you've got you know, a few people in there because, as everyone knows, more heads are better than one. You've got a few people in there. It helps you to think deeply about that system. It's also a very good mindfulness thing, I must say. It helps you to think deeply about that system, but it can also help you to identify the leverage points. So where can I intervene in this system to get bang for buck? So, you know, and you can use that for pretty well anything so not surprising that you know business is now starting to pick up systems maps as a way of you know um, doing some strategic thinking and some strategic planning but yeah so that's the way you know basically we would use that as a sustainability professional and I still think it's very much a life skill as is critical thinking but we can't know everything we don't know what we don't know and we can't know everything. And so I think, you know, we need to remain, you know, humble and understand that, you know, other things might happen. But if we've done our best, then we can be happy with that. It's a bit like, you know, you go to the shop to get your tea and you're broke and you just have to trade this off um, and, and just get the cheapest one. It's, you know, we have to just do the best we can. Yeah, this idea of interdependence and interrelationship, like it really struck me through the pandemic and all of the discourses around freedom and what that meant is that like freedom is an illusion. In a world of interrelationship, like everything you do impacts on everyone and everything around you and vice versa, everything around you impacts on you. There is no such thing as absolute freedom. And our our politics, our ideas, our political ideologies that come from 200 years ago have not caught up to this. And it's it's a real problem for politics in this current period of change. Oh, absolutely. And um, and look, it's, I think it's a real problem for individuals as well. You know, if we have that mindset, that's not, you know, we know that, you know, connection, social connection is important for our mental health. You know, we're not, no man is an island as the saying goes. And, and we need, you know, each other. And, um, you know, we need nature, you know, like, Again, I keep coming back to these sayings that I can't attribute, but, you know, there's a saying around, you know, if the bees go, we're going with them. And, you know, I, I think this, you know, this understanding about how not just everything is interdependent and interrelated, um, and inherently so, but, yeah, it's thinking about us as being part of that system is not something that we do well. And I don't know if we ever have, but I do have a sense that over the last three, four, maybe even five decades, we've become increasingly insular. And I I think, you know, corporations and marketing quite like us that way. 
as well. I think it, it serves them quite well. So, you know, when we think about marketing and, you know, it's all you need, you know, you're not any good unless you have. I mean, that's a subliminal message quite often, but that that's still the message that, you know, people are getting. And so we have this sense of that, you know, we are an individual. It, it's sort of pushed on us, I think, quite a bit. And, and look, I'm I'm open to the fact that, you know, I may be very wrong there. But, yeah, I do very much have the sense that that, you know, push for us to be individual has, you know, grown quite a bit over the last few decades. Having said that, we still keep seeing this necessity for tribe, but not in a good way always, as we've seen quite a bit in the United States of America and more recently in our own country, which not only shocks but saddens me. Um, but, yeah, that, that sense of tribe and, and of course, there is suggestions that, you know, social media and social media algorithms that, you know, put us in a bubble are really not only contributing to that but also accelerating it as well. And so that's been another change in the last sort of 20, 30 years is this rise of internet and social media. But, yeah, I, I, it worries me sometimes that, I mean, I feel incredibly fortunate that I had the luxury to learn about environment and biodiversity and um, our own independence and interdependence with nature. And it worries me that I rarely have a discussion with someone who truly understands that. And so that are we teaching this at school? <laughs> I mean, you know, like I believe we are, but if that's the case, then the message is not getting through or it's getting, you know, overtaken by this sort of me, me, you know, individual, me, me, individual message that, that we keep getting. But, yeah, that, that does worry me quite a bit really because mm -hmm. yep, we depend on anything and everything and and ultimately everything depends on the environment. Now, I'm an environmental scientist and you could say, that, well, you just have a bias to that. And I, I do. I, definitely I do have a bias to that. But I also, you know, social justice, economic justice, environmental justice is so important to me. But you can you can just look around the room you're in right now and each and every one of you, just look around the room that you are in right now. What did not come from the environment? And I know the answer. I mean, even the oxygen you're breathing is coming from the environment but I look you know just next to me here is um I think beautiful cupboard not surprisingly because <laughs> um but you know that that's come from the environment that timbers come from the environment but it's contributed to you know social and economic stuff along the way because somebody's made it somebody's been paid to make it so everything comes from the environment and so I think that's where we get those concepts of deep sustainability and deep environment. Okay, maybe we need a bit of this and a bit of that and sort of globalisation and localisation I think is a great example of that, you know. But I could, what I'm seeing right now, so we swung that pendulum way over to globalisation and, and a lot of people benefited a lot from globalisation. A lot of people did poorly with globalisation. 
But what we're seeing now, and a global pandemic really highlighted this, is, you know, globalisation's maybe not serving us as well still as we thought it was. And what I'm seeing already at the moment is I think we're already starting to go, yay, let's go all the way over to to localisation. And, of course, you know, there are pros and cons to everything and that in systems thinking is what's, you know, needed to be thinking about, you know, what are we doing? What are we doing here? But, yeah, yeah, I can kind of see that we're going to go, wham, let's swing way over there to localisation. Oh, hang on. Um, (laughs) Yeah, there's actually some use and benefit that comes from in global interconnection absolutely well there, yeah. it, there always will be forms of global interconnection because that's just how human societies have always worked absolutely form it takes will change uh, absolutely. yeah cutting yeah. yourself off from the outside world though that the xenophobic way that that could go that really scares me Yes, and that's, um, yeah, that it is really scary and what's just been happening in the UK with one of our former prime ministers advising is is not looking good. And, and you know, while, we, while we're speaking about that, I'm just going to declare I feel deeply ashamed um, at Australia's response. And and we're just going to see more and more. Was that the the IPCC report that just came out the other day? Was like you know there's three billion I think people who are currently, you know, like they're going to have to move around. You know, <laughs> like and so what's going to happen if we've got cl- countries closing their borders to everything except from cheap products mm-hmm. that they can get made elsewhere? I yeah, I feel I feel very concerned. I think it, it it's a bit frightening. All right, just to wind up, what message would you like to share with younger people? It's a a pretty shit time to be a young person for a whole host of reasons. You and I have both been around the block. You've got a few more laps than me. (laughs) What what would you share? Quite a few. How wonderful they are. Um, I again, I'm so fortunate that I actually get to deal with young people in my in my role, um, particularly with TAFE and and you guys are wonderful. And I've got a number of messages, but yeah, just one, you're wonderful. Two, when you hear the middle aged white male politician talking about you know, your generation being entitled, just remember that there are some of us, even having been around the block a few times, who are going, think you need to get a mirror, mate, um, because, <laughs> because they're the ones that, you know, we can't generalise, of course, but, you know, they're the ones that in my role, definitely the most entitled. The key message is, yes, things are going to be different. But things are different for me than they were for my parents. You know, so my parents grew up um, during the Depression, went through the Second World War, and so, you know, basically horse and cart, you know. (laughs) And then my generation has seen the internet. And I think, you know, there is quite rapid change, but really there is has always been rapid change. So, yes, things are going to be different for you. And I think it's really interesting and exciting times i mean the rise of artificial intelligence for example at the moment is is really interesting and and that's probably what i'm going to be looking into a little bit more in the break i guess so you're going to have a really different and a really exciting world but there is you will feel eco anxiety from time to time you will feel solastalgia from time to time embrace that 
I think. Acknowledge it is the most important thing to do is acknowledge it. Then get your resilience systems and build yourself back up again because you have such an important role, such an important role. And there are so many reasons for optimism and hope, so many reasons. And if you don't know that yet, you need to get out there and connect with your community. Your community are doing this stuff. They are. And if you don't know yet, it's because you haven't hooked in yet. So go and hook in, find others doing this stuff. You probably already know a few. But, yep, things are going to be different. Embrace the down bits because that's how you know there's the good bits and and be self-aware and you've got so much to look forward to. Incredibly exciting. That's an amazing way to finish up, Ali. Thank you so much for joining us on the Edge Dwellers Cafe podcast. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Ben. I've absolutely loved it. You sure we can't go on a bit longer? Oh, we could, <laughs> but we'll be here for the rest of the weekend if we do that. <laughs> uh, I hope, um, yeah, hope everyone listening has enjoyed it because, because I've absolutely enjoyed it. Thank you so very much, Ben. Edge Dwellers Cafe. Nice one, Ali. Amazing chat. Ali's message of hope and encouragement at the end there is something that we all need to hear. In the context of what's, let's face it, is a pretty depressing picture of the future that we seem to be confronted with. But her point here is an encouraging one, and one that I wholeheartedly agree with. Yes, the world that we're accustomed to is breaking down and it's old ways of life that we're used to are dying. But as that's happening, something new is being born, a new world's being born, and we're all players in the construction of new ways of being. I think this is exciting and it's a really encouraging thought. A quick reminder that you can support the Edge Dwellers Cafe podcast by clicking the like and subscribe buttons on your chosen podcast platform and or by sending a dollar or two on Ko-Fi to help me cover the costs of birthing the EDC out into the world. Also, a quick plug for my Edge Dwellers Cafe short video collection on YouTube called Vision Journeys. So Vision Journeys are short artistic videos of meditations and spirit journeys I've done and artistic creations that I've made, uh, which I've adapted using AI art systems like Deep Art Effects and Mid Journey. So my aim on these vision journeys is to heal from past traumas, to accept myself for who I am and grow as an individual. Each of the images in the vision journeys playlist has a deep personal resonance for me. And I'm sharing them with you, the public, as an invitation for you to connect with these images in your own unique way for your own healing journey, whatever that may be. The power of these images transcends what they mean for me alone. So do check them out. See the Vision Journeys link in the show notes. Big thanks as always for all of your listener support and feedback. Your support is the fuel that powers the Edge Dwellers Cafe project and it's always much appreciated, so thank you. Time's up for this episode, but there's more great content to come. I'm Ben Habib and this is the Edge Dwellers Cafe podcast. All the best and much love.